Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are two weeks into the Biden administration. Uh, I was just, you know, I did a post yesterday kind of sharing my own experience of this transition. And there's all sorts of meanings of the of transition. We had the kind of the the historically unique attempted non-transition of Donald Trump, which was one thing. And then there's the transition of executive orders and you know, new people having the White House Twitter handles and all that kind of stuff. But certainly one of the things uh, about Donald Trump's presidency and anybody who was not gung-ho for Donald Trump's presidency is it was like being in some ways kind of like in an abusive household or an abusive relationship or all sorts of very uh, all sorts of very bad situations where you cannot get away from a predatory and chaotic presence. Now, obviously, uh, different people experience this administration in different ways, and uh, we can't compare it to the to the horror of being physically beaten by an abuser, whether you're a child or a spouse. But there are common dimensions to it. And this is something I've written about uh, over the four or five years that we have been in this in this thing, in this Trump whatever. It has it has come at the predatory nature of Donald Trump and the way he used his presence that you could not get away from him. And you could not get away from what he might do next. And he is an inherently predatory figure who his whole way of living in the world is to hurt people so he can show he's the dominant force. And uh, we all experienced this presidency uh, very differently. Personally, I was fairly insulated from the sort of the direct impacts of it. White guy, middle-aged, straight, reasonably well off. You know, I, I wasn't being caged down at the border. Um, I, I wasn't uh, the, 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 the white supremacist gangs that Trump was revving up weren't coming after me. They at least weren't coming after me in a demographic sense. I had, I had some moments where, 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 where I, I, I you know, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a weird time to have a high public, you know, a, a, a public profile in a political context. But I was struck by once Trump was out of office, or in a, in a different way, once he lost his Twitter feed. I had lost a sense of how much this guy's yelling, how much space it had taken up in my head. Now, sometimes literally yelling or figuratively yelling on Twitter, but that thing, you can't get away from it. And I was struck by, I wasn't entirely, um, I wasn't entirely surprised for it. I surprised by it. I expected it at some level. But the silence, the silence, that voice isn't there anymore. Now, it's only a couple weeks. I guess he lost his Twitter feed a month ago. It's, you know, he could even get reelected again in 2024. Who knows? We don't know the future. But I did a post sort of talking about the weirdness of that. On the one hand, it's sort of like the calm is amazing. But sort of like people who've been in traumatic or abusive situations, 
it's it's kind of uncanny, right? You're kind of like it. You, you, the calm is nice, but you're you're used to the hyperstimulation, and and you're kind of you're a little thrown off by it. So I did this post and I invited people to, you know, kind of what's your story? What's it been like? And I posted some of those on the site today. I got a bunch more I'm going to post. Really, I mean, you know, some people, uh, pessimistic, optimistic, seeing it more in policy terms or sort of emotional, emotive terms. But a lot of people like, yeah, me and my spouse sleep better now. You know, my acid reflux went away. I mean, it's really quite striking, the, the, you know, people. And again, these were not people, I think, by and large, who were worried that ICE was going to deport them. These are probably people, by and large, who were not, you know, directly, directly impacted by Trump's predation. But man, it really affected people. And, and you know, stuff like you, you don't sleep well. It's one thing kind of like you have an upsetting event, you don't, you know, you don't sleep well for a couple nights. But we're talking about years. And people talking about, oh yeah, kind of this this, you know, this physical ailment went away and I mean, that's pretty intense stuff. So, we're 2 weeks in and kind of, you know, <laughs> and the future is always uncertain, but it's 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 a it's an it's an interesting um it's an interesting thing to think about and that's some of my experience of it. We're going to talk about uh, a, a couple things that that are based on the fact that Trumpism is not over. His voice may not be kind of yelling in our ear or kind of, you know, again, the way you get in a, when you can't get away from a kind of a predatory figure, kind of yelling inside your head. But we're going to talk about this uh, Marjorie Green woman who is, you know, uh, I don't know what she is right now. She, she's like the, uh, you know, uh, there's no God but Trump and, and, and Marjorie is his emissary, right? I mean, it, it, she's, the, she's the embodiment or she's, the, she's, the, uh, she's his messenger at the moment. And, and the Republican caucuses in, in Congress are trying to grapple with what to do about her. Which is a funny thing since everything, I mean, literally everything she has done or said or espoused or anything are things either Trump has done or Trump told her to do. So it's a kind of a funny thing. Like, why are, they so, why are we so upset about her? I mean, yes, she's terrible, but like the leader of the party's done all the same stuff. So we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about something I, uh, I am very interested in. And that is that. The what I think I can call the sense of pleasant surprise that maybe that many Democrats have um, with the fact that I I, I just uh, never mind I I was I was fiddling for those of you who are just listening to sound I was I was fiddling just fiddling with my hand with my eye with my uh, AirPods right the little kind of case you have flipping it open flipping it you know flipping it closed and all of a sudden I get all these these alerts on my screen like your podcast mic is being turned off and then set to AirPods <laughs> little little sidetrack there anyway don't don't play with your uh, AirPods when you're recording a uh, when a you're recording a podcast behind the curtain yeah exactly lucky fourth listeners. fourth wall there <laughs> in any case uh, the, the sense of, of pleasant surprise that Joe Biden is kind of maxing out here. He's kind of pushing on every front. He's, you know, uh, appointed a lot of people who, you know, a pretty broad swath of the party people are happy about. And with this COVID relief thing, he's basically said to Republicans, hey, great, you know, great to hear from you. Thank you for that proposal. But this is really important. And I'm not going to I'm not going to get lucid here and full speed ahead. And, uh, you know, we're two weeks in. We, we don't know what exactly is going to happen here. Uh, but I'm I'm interested by, you know, Democrats have. For a decade plus been in this internal psychodrama, trying to trying to make sense of and, and come to grips with what happened in the early Obama years when. There was a lot of, uh, you know, Obama negotiating with himself, getting dragged into sort of bad faith engagement with Republicans, and uh, getting damaged pretty badly by that. 
not just himself politically, but what he was trying to accomplish. And so that has been kind of like a thing that everybody, you know, everybody in the democratic kind of world has been grousing about and uh, upset about. And we can't repeat that. And uh, so there's a lot of, I think, kind of people pleasantly surprised, like, okay, you know, I didn't have high hopes for Biden because he's, you know, kind of backslapping guy and loves, you know, loves his Republican buddies and what's going on. And I think what it kind of tells me is that there's this been this funny dynamic within the Democratic Party of, you know, I learned the lesson of what happened in the early Obama years. And I'm going to and I'm really upset about it. I'm going to make sure all you other people understand it because I don't think you understand the lesson. And we can't do that again. And in a way, kind of everybody was having that same dialogue. And kind of everyone is getting it, you know, independently, but entirely unconvinced that everybody else got it. Uh, so anyway, so that's another thing we're going to talk about. Before we get to that, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can warm up the winter blues with Grady's reusable all-in-one cold brew kit. With 36 servings per bag, our velvety smooth coffee concentrate is brewed strong for a caffeine kick you can enjoy hot or ice. Just add water. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And uh, give it a try. You know, support our sponsors. Uh, thank them for supporting us and uh, all that good stuff. So, uh, David and Kate, what are we? What's going on? Well, Josh, maybe we, before we uh, turn to our friend Marjorie Taylor Green and Kate, who was our unofficial chief Marjorie Green correspondent. Um, yeah, maybe we should take a second to reflect on the the de-trumping, as you I think you put it in your post. But I will say, deleting the tweet deck column of Trump's tweets was kind of a relief. And, um, you know, I, I know some people had, some journalists had alerts on their phones set up. So every time Trump tweeted, their phones would light up and like that, that can make for a lot of uh, pestering notifications. But it is pretty striking how just quietly he has gone off into the distance. And other than, I guess, uh, Kevin McCarthy going down to visit him in the opulent Mar-a-Lago estate, and Marjorie Green, I guess, having a great call over the weekend. Yeah, we just haven't heard from him. So it'll be interesting to see when or where he does pop up. Because you have to imagine if he called up the Fox control room or OAN or Newsmax, someone's going to put him on TV, right? I mean, even the major networks, I'm sure, would jump at the chance to interview him. So it's kind of surprising we haven't seen that quite yet. I did see some reporting, maybe this was from Maggie Haberman, that he was trying to lay low for six to eight weeks, maybe take a break. I'm sure despite the fact that he didn't do a lot of work as president, you know, that makes sense to a certain extent to kind of have a take a breather, but we'll have to see. Um, so, Kate, speaking of Trumpism uh, not being over, there's been this is kind of the week of the GOP reckoning. On the one hand, we have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a QAnon supporting member of Congress. You covered her campaign for us pretty early, I want to say. So you're about as well-versed as anyone to discuss her kind of political rise. She ran against, I mean, she ran in a safe conservative district. Her Democratic opponent dropped out of the race, I want to say in like September before the election. So basically ran unopposed for the kind of bulk of the general election campaign. Um, and now, like Josh said, you know, she's saying and doing all the kind of things Trump did, but she's obviously all of a sudden causing a lot of problems for the Republican caucus. Tell us kind of what our listeners should know if they've just been kind of hearing about this QAnon congresswoman or aren't super familiar. Just is there anything kind of to set the stage that you think is important for listeners to know about Green as we as we kind of talk about her carrying the torch of Trumpism now? Yeah, well, first of all, I think there's this kind of weird narrative that's happening amid especially national reporters. Um, the one who's getting all the, the beat down for today is uh, at the Washington Post, I think. But, you know, and the theme is being like, well, you know, no one knew about her before. She's fresh on the scene. And, you know, that's not true in any way. And I'm not even talking about the whole, oh, national reporters pay attention to what local reporters are doing. But 
you know, Kevin McCarthy knew about her when she was running in her primary because there was all this pressure for Republican leadership to come out in favor of John Cohen, the still very Trumpy neurosurgeon who was running against her. And it's not like Green was this unknown entity at the time. Everyone who knew about her knew about her because she had spent years kind of making these extremist conspiratorial claims on her social media and amassing a pretty big following because of it. So, you know, in no way is she an unknown entity and is in no way what she's doing should be surprising, you know, because any Republican who's like, well, you know, you want to see what she does in the in the grabby toss of office. It's like, oh, please, you know, this is a woman who is shameless enough to follow Parkland survivors around and like yell at the kids to you know be tougher and face her and everything. So she the same way with Trump. It's the exact same narrative of, well, you, maybe the presidency would humble him. It's like, what about these people gives you that indication? So that's who she is. Republicans knew she was coming. Some of them knew she was going to be a problem. But clearly, since at least the time when, you know, McCarthy was kind of being pushed about what he was going to do about the primary, she's been on their radar as someone with the potential to kind of be the next Steve King, and they didn't care. You know, they didn't even take the easy step there of endorsing another very right-wing Republican. So this is absolutely, you know, to the degree that it is a problem for them, a problem of their own making. Um, and now we just have this kind of cinematic setup almost where, you know, you've got Green and you've got Cheney and the reckoning with both of them is supposed to happen today. And, you know, it's got an added layer to me, given that there are so few women in the Republican caucus at large, more in the House than the Senate, but not that many. And now we've got one basically representing each side of the schism in the Republican Party, you know, one who is the the kind of Trump heir and then one who, you know, she's a Cheney, she's from the, the Bush era kind of thing. Um, so everything that we're hearing on the green front is that it does seem like McCarthy's going to do something, um, in some part because Democrats are absolutely clamoring for blood. And I also don't think we would be in the situation we are now if Steve King was not so fresh in people's minds. Um, but, you know, his being stripped of his committees was not that long ago. So it's a little hard to say, well, her calling for the execution of Democratic politicians is, you know, not so bad as white supremacy. So we're going to let it slip. You know, the, there's that is a backdrop. Um, so on the yeah, on that front, Kevin McCarthy was trying to come to a uh an agreement with Steny Hoyer, we'll take her off the education committee, we'll take this conspiracy theorist off the education committee, but we'll leave her on budget and that'll be good enough, good enough for everyone. But it seems that Hoyer is not open to taking that deal, especially because a lot of people in the House are calling for, you know, her expulsion, censoring, um, something serious, censuring, excuse me. Um, so the meeting where there, there's a rules committee hearing today at three, where they're going to start moving on um, a resolution from Debbie Wasserman Schultz that would strip her of all her committees, whether McCarthy likes it or not. And that's just a simple majority vote, um, which will pass in the Democratic House. So we're kind of starting to reach the point where if McCarthy doesn't do anything, Democrats are going to do it for him. Um, and then, yeah, on the other hand, we also have a big GOP conference meeting at four, where basically Liz Cheney's fate will probably be decided. McCarthy could stretch it out a little bit. He has the option to either kind of bring to a vote right then and there what to do about her leadership position, or he can punt it to an internal committee um, and drag the process out a little bit. But, you know, I've heard that they're encouraging anti-Cheneyites to come in person. So she has to face her critics, you know, face to face, N never mind any of the pandemic subtext of that. So uh, yeah, we have this this big mythic, you know, Republican reckoning today. Right. I'm curious, you know, to hear both of your thoughts on this, which is, um, is this just kind of like a gift served up on a platter to Democrats for the 2022 midterms in that you know, I ask that because every day we have a new headline about Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, liking Facebook posts that Democrats should be murdered or, you know, Anderson Cooper eats babies. I guess that was maybe a different QAnon <laughs> supporter. But, um, you know, every day there are these headlines about, the, you know, this uh, kind of rising star in the Republican Party who is just so, you know, whose views are so extreme and so out of touch with what, you know, most of the country, I think, uh, 
feels is reality, right? She denies the the reality of these school shooting massacres. They're still pretty fresh in everyone's mind. You know, Parkland was just a couple years ago. Um, I know the DCCC is launching a an ad campaign targeting not uh, not Green herself, but McCarthy and I think seven other maybe vulnerable House Republicans who have kind of flirted with the QAnon or kind of uh, enabled you know some of the crazy conspiracy theories. So is this is you know, is Bobert one of the ones there? Because I know the thing with with Bobert, who's this who's this freshman from Colorado, that Green's uh, and Kate will know more about this. Green's uh, district is like so Republican that like unless she's defeated in a primary, she'll be reelected. But Bobert's district, I think, is actually like a swing district. Yeah. So her win was like, like a big surprise. Yeah. I don't think yeah. Bob I don't think Bobert is on that list from what I remember. But yeah, it would make sense that she would be kind of part of that group and maybe there's other, you know, other groups or other political organizations uh, making plans on that front. But I don't know, Josh, what do you think? Should Democrats be grateful for Marjorie Taylor Greene? Or is it kind of too soon to say how it all shakes out, I guess, politically and then kind of in electoral terms? Well, I mean, I guess one way to put it is, you know, I think we'd be much better off if if she did not, she and what she represents did not exist, obviously. And I know you're not, not suggesting otherwise. But, you know, one of the one of the key things about the last uh, has roots further back, but especially the last decade, last 12 years, is that the Republican Party presents itself as a center-right party of government. You have the Tories in the UK, the Christian Democrats in Germany, you know, the Gaullists in France, blah, 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 blah. But in fact, it, what it, how it actually functions is more like a rightist revanchist party like the National Front in in France or the various you know uh, there have been a very a, a number of parties in the UK that are like it wasn't British nationalist you know similar kinds of things so it is good to get that reality out there you know Donald Trump is clearly still the head of the Demo- uh, the Republican Party. There's no question about that. And right as this stuff was coming to the fore, he very conspicuously gave Green a call and said, you know, thumbs up. I'm behind you. So this isn't, uh, you know, th- th- this isn't some rando who happened to get elected and it's like an embarrassment. They don't know what to what to, you know, the Republican Party doesn't know what to do about it. This is the Republican Party. This is the Republican Party. And you it, and and you need go no further than the fact that Donald Trump is the head of the Republican Party and he is identical to her. So it is good to have that out. And the more that is out, the better, because that's reality. And, and I don't think you can... You can't, it's, it's not just good for the Democrats, it is good for the country to have the reality on the table that you have a, you know, center, center-left party of government, um, a kind of a rightist nationalist party, and those are the two parties. And that's a pretty unstable, bad situation because the center-left party isn't going to be, on, you know, in power forever and always. That's not how it works. Right. But you have this situation where there's only one party that really like supports pluralism and democracy. And that makes every election kind of like an existential test. And that that's a that's a bad situation. It's a bad situation. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I'm kind of in two minds because I do think the Marjorie Greens of the world might short term help Democratic electoral chances. Um, just because historically 2022 should not go well for Democrats, like based on the way it's gone the past four times, they should lose uh, one of the chambers. And I do think having based on how the reaction to Trump, we've seen that the reaction to that kind of extremism is strong. Um, it tends to really increase Democratic turnout and get people fired up in a way that I think uh, kind of more traditional country club Republicans might not do, um, which is kind of going to what Josh is saying. When that extremism is so on the surface, um, you know, it gets people who might not even pay attention that much angrier. But yeah, I think health of the democracy wise, 
having people like her in government is not a good thing, especially just kind of for the, you know, the markers of the norms. She is pushing the limit of what an elected official can say, you know, further than it's been pushed before. And that stuff matters because that's the new border. Um, and especially when we kind of have this swelling of the segment of the Republican Party to begin with and this kind of uh, veil of violence over our politics already, having someone who's encouraging that from a position with the gravitas of an elected office is, you know, that's a that's a threat to the democracy. And the fact that Republicans are A, not super set on punishing her, and B, seem to feel that the biggest risk here is not having her continue the way she has been, but setting the precedent of uh, punishing a House member for things that they said before they got into Congress slash having Democrats punish her. Um, that precedent is like what they're more concerned about than it seems the content of what she's saying and the kind of people she's riling up with those comments. Right. That makes sense. I guess I'm curious, one other question, and then maybe we can move on to um, to kind of the first couple of weeks of Biden, like Josh was alluding to, is um, what are the risks in covering someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene so intensely, you know, uh, maybe this is a good question for Josh, since you've been at this uh, for longer than Kate and I, but, you know, is there risk in that you, you write about her, she's kind of, she's sort of the new Trump, right? She's kind of taken up the oxygen that Trump once dominated, but um, is there a risk that backfires because it, it raises her profile, it makes her into kind of a cause celeb for people on the right, and, uh, you know, gives her more power, I guess, in a sense. How do you how do you thread that needle, or how do you, like you say, Josh, kind of expose the reality of the situation? Um, she's an elected member of Congress who has said um, a number of you know problematic and dangerous things. How do you balance that with um, I don't know, not trying to give her too much of a high profile in you know I, I don't know I, just I the attention. I, I, it's funny what I said at the at the at the front of the show about Trump that kind of like wow it's nice to have him shut up right is you know kind of cuts against this but um but that's that is in many ways that that that's an experiential thing I think we as an organization TPM as an organization has been very committed from the very beginning and I hope will continue to be you know always committed to the idea th there is this idea that some people have many people with sort of like good intentions and good values that if we don't talk about something it, it kind of doesn't exist you know don't give her so much attention don't give her oxygen all this kind of stuff um at 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 one basic level certainly for uh you know marjorie green is not Marjorie Green. She doesn't have oxygen to the extent that you know is a is a is a valuable metaphor, because uh, you know publications like TPM are talking about her, right? I mean that is that is a profound kind of myopia that I think many well-intentioned people, often people center center left with cosmopolitan values and so forth, um, something they get very wrong. And I think that one of the one of the things that uh, about our coverage, about TPM's coverage over the last you know half dozen years, something like that, is that Trump did not surprise us because our coverage, our commentary in the years preceding Trump had basically said the Republican Party is really the Freedom Caucus in in the House of Representatives. It's not John Boehner. That is what the Republican Party is. And people like Representative Gohmert and Steve King and all these kind of people who sort of the a lot of the elite press said, well, come on, that that's like that, that's like, you know, kind of comic relief and crazies. That's not really real politics. Well, that was real politics. That was what the reality of the Republican Party was. That's who controlled the Republican Party. Um, and by ignoring those things or think, thinking again, like, oh, you're just cutting off the oxygen, you get very surprised when suddenly, like, wow, Donald Trump's in charge now. What happened to John Boehner? 
or what happened to George W. Bush. Not people anybody was crazy about, certainly readers of TPM, was crazy about before, but at least they're kind of recognizable conservative politicians, not like kind of like gang leaders or something like that. Um, so I don't think there really is much danger of that. Um, journalism is about conveying the reality of the situation. There is not a Marjorie Greene or there's not a Donald Trump because uh, people, you know, put them on TV a lot. That's not, that's not how it works. And, and that is, I think one of the, all that stuff about, oh, CNN created Donald Trump by, you know, kind of letting on, letting him on TV so much. There's a little truth about that in this, in the sense that, um, you know, uh, not, not pointing out his errors and, you know, all uh, stuff like that. But there's this there's this very kind of dangerous myopia behind that kind of thinking that that in fact, we the sort of the the right thinking, you know, press types, we we actually control what happens by what we put on TV and what. Well, that's not how it works. And I think it is much better to. To, to know the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is, again, one of the two major parties in the country right now is really kind of a rightist nationalist party that, that, is, um, that is a revisionist party, for lack of a better word, wants to fundamentally change the kind of the basic democratic pluralist country that most of us thought it was a given that we lived in. So I don't frankly think there's much danger of that. I think the danger is having that reality um, obscured so that people don't know what is coming and don't know what they are, don't know what they're dealing with. Well, and I, I think that myopia you talked about with the Republican Party is also interesting because that same kind of tendency to highlight, like you said, the John Boehners or people of that mold as like, this is the real Republican Party also has an effect of kind of whitewashing the darker tendencies that have been part of the Republican ideology since long before Trump came on the scene, which also kind of led to what we're seeing now. You know, we wouldn't have a Trump or a Marjorie Greene if Republicans hadn't been happily, albeit much more quietly, suppressing votes for years and gerrymandering their districts and, you know, hewing to policies that, um, having an aversion to, you know, the social safety net or inclusive immigration policies, um, you know, all that stuff has kind of led to where we are now. And for a long time, I think it got buried under this patrician exterior of the country club uh, Republican. But all this stuff is connected. You know, you can go back and look at um, Lee Atwater and see the kind of lie infused campaigning that Republicans so many of them did, you know, this, this cycle, even in, you can see like a little example of that in the Georgia runoffs, you know, you had Republican or Democrats running on healthcare and bread and butter stuff. And you had Leffler and Purdue running on their socialist, communist extremists who are going to like take over your neighborhood. You know, it's all that stuff is there. And I do think that now that it's kind of broken into the open in a bigger way than it has before, it's probably healthier to get that stuff out into the sunlight that was kind of it's been festering for decades yeah yeah that makes sense all right well let's talk about uh biden's kind of first couple weeks and not exactly his legislative uh action but it relates to you know the american rescue plan which he's pushing it's a i think 1.9 trillion dollar plan and republicans have countered wanting something like 600 million or is that billion 600 billion yeah so like a third basically right exactly um I think Biden's first meeting with congressional leaders was with Republicans, right? Was that Monday or Tuesday night uh, when he had a, a two-hour meeting with Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, among others? Uh, but Josh, like you said at the top of the show, Biden has held pretty strong on his desire to go big and the need to go big on COVID relief. I think you know, we are in kind of the worst of the pandemic at the moment as far as uh, death toll 
number of cases. You know, the vaccines are making progress, but we still, you know, January was the deadliest month, deadliest month of COVID so far. Um, and we're three days past, you know, that month. Um, I think today Biden might have called into a Democratic uh, congressional meeting saying he's not he's not going to back down and kind of go with Republicans slim down package. We had this week Pelosi and Schumer kind of take the first steps towards budget reconciliation as a vehicle to pass Biden's uh, COVID relief plan. And, you know, there's been so much hilarious and kind of annoying coverage about, oh, what about bipartisanship and what about Biden's unity message? And it's amazing how quickly we kind of revert back to the Obama era in that sense. Um, Josh, tell us more just kind of about what you've been noticing, like, um, are there other signs that you've gotten from Biden or the administration that uh, maybe they have learned some of those lessons of the past of the Obama years that negotiating with Republicans won't won't get the kind of big, bold legislation that the country needs and that the you know the American public, I guess, basically elected Biden for. Right. I mean, with yeah. that expectation, it's I mean, my, what has interested me most is the intra-democratic dialogue. You know, the the for most of, well, really since 2016, the the Democratic Party, I mean, there's a million different factions, the Democratic Party, very broadly, sort of like more establishment kind of, you know, coalitional Democratic Party. And then the, you know, in one sense, the word progressive wing kind of associated with Bernie Sanders, but also a lot of other things bubbling up from the sort of the, you know, firmament of, of, of democratic politics and a huge amount of the primary campaign was, you know, Joe Biden's this old guy who's just stuck in the old Senate ways. And, you know, he supported this in 1975 and that in 1985 and whatever. So, uh, you know, very low expectations. And, you know, I, I, in my, in my Twitter feed, I see my sort of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of DSA types I follow kind of like, Oh man, Biden, great job, dude. Right. I mean, so <laughs> it's a little weird to see. Right. Um, but in some ways I think, what I take away from this is a lot of these divisions. Now, there are big, big divisions within the Democratic Party, and that's normal and fine, right? But a number of them were more collapsed than I think a lot of commentary and, and sort of people within the Democratic coalition kind of led on to. I mean, one of the things that struck me was, uh, you know, th there's this group third way which is this kind of, you know, a at least in its origins, a group sort of dedicated to the sort of the principle of triangulation, right? That's what the title is, third way, right? Not gonna, not the old, old tax and spend liberal stuff, not conserve a third way that kind of brings the best of both, blah, 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 blah. And uh, that group has been a kind of a, 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 you know, boogeyman for a lot of Democrats and a lot of ways rightly, right? And so the day that Biden released his uh, $1 trillion, you know, package, kind of put that out there, the guy who's the head of the group, Third Way, tweeted, you know, kind of tweeted the link and said, let's do this, right? And that kind of confirmed to me something I, I think I basically already knew, that a lot of the sort of fiscal policy, pay-fors, debt, austerity kind of thing, there are very few people in the Democratic Party right now of who have any power over anything who are there that's kind of past and 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 so that kind of you know those two wings of the democratic party you kind of say i mean again if the head of third way sees like an almost two trillion dollar spending plan with no pay-fors like we're not going to kind of you know have a plan of what we're going to cut to pay just and that person's like yeah dude let's do it you can see that something pretty big has 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 changed there, and um, you know, to me, Joe Biden has always been a median Democrat, right? He will be where the sort of the consensus, median consensus of the party is, and he's going to do that thing, and that's I think what you're seeing. This is kind of where the where the party is. He's not pushing, you know, Medicare for all. Um, but on big fiscal policy stuff, on austerity, 
on the centrality of, you know, racial equity, all these kind of things. There's there's a lot of stuff that, you know, that a lot of people, broadly speaking, they may not agree, but there's stuff that they can, there, there's a sort of a, a broad range of stuff they can all kind of look at and say, yeah, okay, let's do that. Let's, let's, let's focus on that. The other part of it, though, is that, again, the, the strategic and aesthetic parts of it, of sort of like, you know what, we're not going to get jammed up by what the, you know, the post editorial page is saying, we're not going to kind of get lulled into this, like Susan Collins, you know, kind of bipartisan gang thing. I mean, to me, the issue is not so much that he would have or could have said, oh, okay, you know, this this $600 billion plan, yeah, that, you know, we can work with that. Because frankly, that would like blow up the Democratic Party and blow up his presidency. I mean, th- that is just like unthinkable. And I don't think that was ever, that that's just not possible politically right now. But what was possible is you kind of say, okay, that's an interesting first thing. Let's 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 see what we can come up with, or we'll break it down into parts. And and basically that model, which was basically the Obama model. I mean, they did eventually pass Obamacare, but after frittering away like a year of negotiating with a group of Republicans who never never ended up supporting anything. So it's more whether you would do that, not that you're going to kind of you know agree at the beginning to like a third of what you're proposing, but that you're just going to get, you know, lucid with the football. And um, it's interesting to see that a lot of, you know, there is, I think, at least for the moment, a sense of, you know, pleasant surprise, like, okay, maybe we get, maybe we get this, maybe, maybe, maybe the sort of the different players get, you know, because it's not just Joe Biden, you see like Chuck Schumer saying like, oh, you know, we can't, we can't screw around like that. Um so, you know, great. Yeah, I Good agree that I, I've been pleasantly surprised so far with a caveat of I think kind of the biggest test is yet to come, um, in part because the COVID package just has so much urgency heaped upon it, um, not to mention the fact that especially in Georgia, you had people running on these checks. You know, that would be a very tangible broken promise. Um but again, still very pleased to see them kind of readying the reconciliation machinery very quickly, um, kind of being like, yeah, of course, we'll take all the meetings you want with the Republicans. And then, you know, but that's too small. And you guys are welcome to come with us on reconciliation. But this is what we're doing. Um, very and, pleased and, to and see if I can, uh, And Kate, if yeah. I can just add one thing, mm-hmm. I think implicitly they're also saying like, and we'll keep chatting about ch- chatting about right. it with you, but we're not going to we're not going to not start the clock ticking on this reconciliation thing. Right. That that's kind of the key. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. And then, you know, the other piece of this to me is Schumer's refusal to back down in uh, the face of McConnell's filibuster threat over the organizing resolution, uh, which was, I don't think, at the time, seemed like a politically easy decision to make. There wasn't really a clear way out of that situation. Uh, He had the caucus very unified behind him. Um, And, you know, I've seen some speculation that this kind of bolder Schumer is in part because of the the lingering threat of an AOC challenge in the future. And, you know, maybe that's so. But taken as a piece, I think people's biggest fear that Biden would come in with this quaint, old-fashioned notion of bipartisanship would just you know, put on the blinders and make him kind of waste this unique opportunity where Democrats have control in all three branches. And that definitely hasn't happened yet. Now, I do think, like I said, the the biggest the biggest challenge is yet to come because they're doing uh, COVID now. They're going to have the impeachment trial, which is going to suck up some time and air. Um, and then we're going to get to a point, I think the COVID package is going to like take a while. I don't, I would be surprised if it ends up getting done before March, but at that point, they're going to have to have, they're going to have to start having the real filibuster conversation, unless you know the Republicans end up not being obstructionist. In which case, I'll I don't know eat a bug or something. But you know that's the point at which we're going to start having more ideological fights and fights that are still absolutely grounded in huge human need, but not in the same way of there is a cliff on the unemployment benefits. You know, this many people are dying per day. It's going to be more. The planet is dying and policing reform and stuff like that, which I think might require a bit more. Um, 
And, the, and I mean, some of the, and those are divisive issues within right. within democratic politics. Uh, yeah, also a good point that even getting those fifty votes is going to be an uphill battle. And I think so. That's going to be a bigger challenge in my eyes. But I totally agree that the the tone that they've taken in the first few weeks is very assertive and very. Uh, kind of not falling for the same tricks Republicans played during the Obama era. I do wonder in part how much of that is due to the fact that I think a lot of Obama alums are staffing the Biden administration. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, either and way. Again, it's Biden's kind of, an Obama alum. Right. 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 <laughs> exactly. I mean, one, one thing, one thing I think there's, you know, I, I, I feel a touch vindicated, although again, to Kate's point, it's very early, you, you know, you'll be disappointed at some point. Don't worry. Right. I mean, there's lots of stuff to come. But I do think people kind of misjudged Biden at a basic level. But there's there's one aspect of that I think has not gotten maybe enough attention, and that is that Biden's an old man. He's almost eighty years old. I think that has along along with the panoply of crises facing the country has put a sense of urgency behind him. It's not even clear that Biden will run for a second term. He may, but who knows? He'll be almost 84 or, you know, he'll be in his early 80s by then. So I think that has given him, I mean, I'll tell you, I remember that Obama gave an interview at the beginning of his presidency, and I can't, I have no idea where it was, but it stuck with me at the time because it was kind of like a, a bit of a cocky comment, you know, very, you know, whatever, and proved to be right. And Obama, and any the contest said, you know, I plan on being president for a while, you know, kind of like, and this is when his like it's seventy percent in you know first months and whatever, kind of like you know this is just my first term, I'm not going anywhere soon, you know, kind of like thinking about your whole eight years, all the stuff you're going to do. Well, right now the economy is in severe recession. There is a horrible public health pandemic. Biden, again. He may not even run for a second term. So I think that has really calibrated his sense of like, time is fleeting. I'm really going to do everything I can right now, right now. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, because in another way, Biden's whole presidency is a weird historical accident. This is someone who ran 12 years ago and his campaign was like a joke right? And now he's president. That's kind of like a total reversal and kind of like, I think he's thinking, I'm not going to fuck this up. I'm not going to waste this. And, and I'm sort of presenting it here in kind of personal terms, like my legacy, my whatever. But, you know, unlike the psychopath who used to be president, he, I th- he cares greatly about this country and the people who are suffering in this country. The other part of it is, we inevitably always personalize politics and uh, the powers of the president in the U.S. system make, give some logic to that. But a presidency is heavily, heavily, especially for someone like Joe Biden, who is more kind of like a managerial big picture guy, is very structured by the people who, you know, people who are closer to my age who are the kind of the top lieutenants. And I think about his chief of staff, Ron Klain, right? Got a lot of people who, they're not from the sort of the Bernie wing, but these are people who have taken the measure of the last decade of our politics. And I think come into this presidency, having learned a lot of those lessons, having, having not just learned them, having taught them, Right? These aren't people who are passively receiving this. These are people who, who were key people in the Obama administration, but I think in a lot of ways kind of came out of like, fuck, we kind of got rolled, and we're not going to do that again. So it's, it, those people uh, you know, are just as important as Biden in, in kind of like you know, what, what the strategy is, what the attitude is, what the you know, gestalt is of the whole thing. And in some ways, it is kind of a straight continuation from his campaign, you know, because back then, especially in those early days where he was really kind of flailing and, you know, came in fourth or fifth place those first few contests. And, you know, if you would listen to the punditry in mass then, it was just, you know, he's 
too old, he's too unexciting, he's not the person for the moment. And his team just ignored that. He kept to his thing, he kept to his unifying empathetic thing. And then we know kind of how that went. And I'm just getting similar vibes from the administration now of this, you know, they're not even engaging with the silly kind of bad faith, like, oh, is this bipartisanship or can Biden achieve unity type narratives? You know, that they're just kind of plowing ahead, doing their own thing, you know, letting Republicans kind of like cry about budget reconciliation and then saying, hey, you guys are free to vote with us still, you know, and just kind of not taking that bad framing and especially that framing that takes the onus off Republican obstructionism and puts it on Biden as unifier, just kind of not even engaging with that and doing their own thing, kind of trusting their instincts. And that has been, to me, like kind of a through line of this latest incarnation of Biden's, uh, you know, as a political force. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, maybe let's leave it there. And next time when we are disappointed, we can come back and uh, talk about the flip side, I guess. Yeah, no. And I, and I just just to drill home that point, you know, uh, it's early. The, the challenges are just so immense. And um, there are a lot of structural bogeys out there for the Biden administration. You know, midterm election with with razor thin majorities in in both houses of congress um because of the how the 2020 election shaked out uh, a lot of prospects for bad redistricting that that puts the house majority under tremendous strain so there's and not and not to mention the fact like country's in a profound economic crisis and and joe biden regardless of who's responsible he owns it now and he owns the pandemic now Right. And and he's going to have to show something pretty dramatic in two years. So there's all it's not it's not a matter of being like rosy eyed or something like that. But I do think we can see in these first couple weeks that the people calling the shots in the Biden administration, Joe Biden, not least of them, recognize the urgency that each day is precious and each day is, is very consequential and uh you know have the bit in their teeth and they're and they're running so with that metaphor let me remind you that uh grady's cold brew ice coffee is the sponsor of the josh marshall podcast and uh definitely support our sponsors all that good stuff and if you if you are if you just want to try try out grady's for the first time you can get 25 percent off your first order at grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code tpm that's grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code tpm all right all thanks, right guys talk to you next week later